We're in Second Corinthians chapter 11 tonight, so if you'll turn there with me. We'll begin looking at what Paul has to say about mostly himself in this chapter. He has been showing his concern for the Corinthian church having been misled by several individuals that are in the church in Corinth. And he's going to be continuing to talk about that in this chapter and the next. But uh, in this part of his defense, he's going to be talking kind of reluctantly, but in a sense boasting about his having been serving the Lord in the way that he has. But it's only being done because those who were against him were boasting about themselves. Remember, he talked in chapter 10 about the fact that they classified themselves and compared themselves with those who commend themselves and they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves and aren't wise. Well, Paul is now going to be using that illustration from chapter 10 in a kind of a reversal sort of way because they are boasting and now he's saying because they boast, well, I'll let me boast but he doesn't really do it in a way that he's proud of. He's saying, I, I act as a fool in doing this, but I do it because of their boasting. So that's what we're going to be looking at tonight in chapter 11. He begins by saying in verse 1, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin in Christ. So Paul is here saying that he wants to present the Corinthian church, as he does all the churches that he has been involved with, before the Lord as a chaste virgin, without spot, without any kind of blemish. And he's acting kind of like a fatherhood uh, figure here because it is the responsibility in Paul's day for the father to make an arrangement for his daughters to be married. They didn't really have a whole lot of choice in the matter in those days, although there was some limited uh, influence that they might have. But uh, for the most part, the parents chose the husband for the daughter and the wife for the son. And uh, there was always going to be some need for care and how they chose uh, those individuals, but for the most part it did work out fairly well under the circumstances. It didn't really have anything to do with you know, loving your partner and, and hopefully that would result in the long-term engagement that they had and uh, the preparations that they were making to become husband and wife. So I'm sure love would grow in that relationship for the most part didn't always work out that way, but that's basically how they did things back then. I'm reminded, though, that you know, even way back in the time of Abraham's day, uh, Abraham's son Isaac uh, had his wife chosen for him, and it turned out to be pretty good. Uh, he loved his wife. And his son Jacob, on the other hand, when he uh, decided to get married, he was very attracted to Rachel. And so he asked his uncle Laban for Rachel's hand in marriage, and Laban agreed. 
But when the marriage ceremony came, and at night he went into uh, his wife, he found out that it was not Rachel, it was Leah. And it tells us in the Word of God that Leah was uh, not as beautiful and appealing to uh, Jacob as as Rachel was. Well, he ended up getting Rachel, but in the end, he loved Rachel more than Leah. Love is necessary, I think, in in a good relationship. Uh, and in the case of the, the Jewish people, again, they were chosen by the parents. Now, Paul is saying, because he's taking this fatherly uh, approach to his influence in the churches. He's saying here that I want to make sure that you are in a good quality condition as as churches uh, before he presents the church to the Lord. So there's work that needs to be done in the church. If we're going to be presented as chaste virgins, uh, the church needs to be very much aware of the need for uh, a clear sense of God's will in our lives and and certainly we have the word of God to guide us in those things and so we should be very grateful for Paul and the other gospel writers and the writers of the New Testament letters that we have that we have instruction that we can know how we are to be and what we are to do in order to become uh, a chaste virgin before the Lord presented to him as his bride and um, that was a very important thing in the Jewish culture that the bride would be indeed a virgin when she entered into a marriage relationship. Uh, she could be stoned if she was not found to be so. So that's a very important concept that Paul is presenting here to this Corinthian church. And again, he says in verse 2, he's jealous with a godly jealousy. Now that doesn't mean that he's jealous in the way that we consider it to be uh, the way we treat others with a sense of jealousy. If we're jealous over somebody, it's usually because we are jealous because they have something that we don't have, perhaps, or something along those lines. Jealousy or envy is not a good thing. But in the case of God, his jealousy, of course, has nothing to do with that kind of jealousy. His jealousy is a jealousy for us. And it's because we are his and he does not want us to be taken by any other God or to have any other gods before him. So he's a jealous God in that respect because of his ownership of us. And he's saying here that he has a jealousy like God's jealousy for the Corinthian church. That's actually quite a remarkable statement that he's making here. But he goes on to say in verse 3, but I fear, and this is a problem here that Paul sees, I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you received a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Paul says, I want you to be presented as a chaste virgin, but I fear these things. And he's telling the Corinthian church that they need to be very careful in who they listen to. What decisions they make as a church should be based on the Word of God and, and only those things that they have learned from him and the other apostles. But there are others coming on the scene already in Corinth who have apparently uh, deceived some of the church in 
taught them different things about Jesus, different things about a gospel that they feel uh, is the appropriate way to serve God. Many of them are Jews, and we'll find that to be the case later on that he's talking specifically about Judaizers as he moves forward in this particular chapter. But Paul is saying, they may come along and teach another Jesus. Don't believe them. Know what I have taught you and the other apostles who are faithful to the Word of God, the Old Testament Scriptures that they have, and even some of the New Testament Scriptures that had already been written, the Gospel records in a couple of cases, and a few of the Paul's letters had been distributed, and they were considered to be Scripture. And that is what they needed to adhere to uh, as they listen to those who present some new thing. You know, I've had a uh, an acquaintance many years ago who used to say, if it's new, it ain't true. Well, there's a certain amount of truth to that statement. I can't say it matter-of-factly that way, but I believe that you do have to take what is presented as new things to be very careful that it is in agreement with the things that we know to be so in the Scriptures. Compare Scripture to Scripture. Be Bereans. You know, there's a lot of teachers out there who are indeed teaching false doctrine. And we need to be very careful who it is that we listen to. And we need to make sure that we compare what they say to what the Word of God says. Don't take it for granted that they are quoting accurately the Word of God. Satan does a good job with quoting Scripture, but he almost always puts some kind of falsehood embedded into what he says and it looks and sounds like the Word of God, but when you look at the Word of God to confirm what is being said, you'll find that there are uniquely, inerrantly, in the Word of God, no errors at all. But when you hear somebody who talks about certain things that are completely contrary to what the Word of God says, you should know that it is error and you should never, ever follow after such a one. You know, there are cults that say, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, that Jesus was a created being. Um, the Mormons also have that same uh, concept, that he was a created being. There are some in certain other denominations. Uh, you may have heard of the um, Seventh-day Baptist organization. Uh, there are some who teach that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Uh, you have to uh, understand that the Word of God doesn't support that. And you need to make very clear in your mind what you do believe and be able to present it to others uh, in a way that is truthful, is without error. These were these things that were happening in Corinth. They were teaching another Jesus. They were teaching a different spirit. Uh, they were teaching a different gospel. And Paul was warning them and causing a great deal of concern in his heart for them because of those teachers. He knows they were present. And he says again in verse 3, uh, if, the, the certain, uh, the, the, if the serpent was able to deceive Eve, he certainly could deceive anyone else uh, if we aren't comparing what the Word of God says to what is being spoken. So it's Satan that is behind all of the deception that is in the world today. He goes on to talk about the fact that he uh, knows that they have to be uh, very careful in who it is they listen to. But he now tells them 
that there are some who are indeed false apostles. He says in verse 5, For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent of the apostles. Even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. The apostles should be known as the apostles of Jesus Christ. Paul was saying, I was ordained by the Lord Jesus Christ. I was taught by the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul tells us. He says that when he was very early on a new believer, from the time that he was in Damascus, he went from Damascus into Arabia for a very long season of time. And it's apparently there that the Lord Jesus taught him about himself. And Paul is saying, I have knowledge that came from Jesus himself. I'm not untrained in speech. I Rather, I am untrained in speech in terms of being a great orator. Uh, but I have knowledge that came from the Lord. And that's something that classifies him as being an apostle of Jesus Christ because Jesus was the one who instructed him. The false apostles cannot claim that. They didn't have that authority that was given to Paul and the other apostles that he recognizes. Well, verse 7 continues and says, Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For I lacked the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you, so I will keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Corinth is in Achaia, that territory of southern Greece. And he's saying, while I was in Achaia, while I was in there, in that community, serving you for those 18 months, I didn't take any money from you. I received money from others. But I didn't want you to be burdened by my being there in your community and expecting that you should have to pay my wages. Paul wasn't in it for the money. Now, that was contrary to the typical style of those who would come through uh, as men who were counted to be wise in their own eyes, and they were orators with great skill, and they would share many wonderful new things that would be taught by them, and they would expect a wage from those who would listen to them. That was what they did, and it was a custom in that day, and the Corinthians would consider that to be the normal thing. But Paul never approached it that way. And there were some who were saying, well, Paul doesn't ever ask us for money, so he's not really qualified. You know, they were using some crazy logic to determine that Paul didn't really have it uh, as a speaker. And he may not have been a good orator. He tells that maybe so in his own expression. I may not be trained in speech, but I have knowledge. And that's important. You know, we are definitely needing men and women who know the Word of God in the church today. And that's something that we should be very, very focused on, studying the Word of God. You know, Paul tells that to Timothy, but it's also conveyed to everyone who believes. As a believer in Jesus Christ, we all should study to show ourselves approved unto God, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. 
And that is what Paul told Timothy, but it should be what we also believe to be our responsibility as well. But we should also be doers of the word and not hearers only. Make sure we understand that as well. Well, Paul continues to talk about the fact that they are not recipients, none of the apostles that he was uh, recommending as the apostles of the Lord, true apostles, they're not in it for the money. We're just doing it because we are called to do it. And that should be the way it is for all pastor teachers. That has been my desire to uh, be one who has been known as a called one of God. And that is why I never ever uh, ask any of our uh, board members for any kind of remuneration or any additional funds. It's not necessary. It shouldn't be done. When I began the ministry here, I didn't ask for a wage and there wasn't a wage offered. And that was okay with me. I worked for three years without any kind of uh, income from the church. After that, the church grew enough so that they could pay me a meager sum, and it turned out well for me. I was appreciative of that until I became a full-time pastor, and then they began to take care of me in a more substantial way. But it wasn't necessary, and especially the earlier years, I was working a full-time job, or at least a part-time job even at the time, and making ends meet just fine. I didn't require any effort uh, on the part of the church to take care of my uh, financial needs. That's the way I approached it, and that's the way Paul was here approaching it as well. But he's again saying in verse 12, there are things, because of what they were saying, that as a result of their boasting, now Paul has chosen to compensate against their, their argument by boasting a little bit, but not in the way that they were boasting, in a very different sort of way. Paul says in verse 13, uh, before he goes on to that, um, he says in verse 11, Why? Because I do not love you? No, God knows. But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things which they boast. They were saying that they were just as qualified as apostles as Paul and the others that Paul had mentioned in the previous letter, Apollos and Peter and others, and they were not qualified. They were not. They were boasting of themselves. They were puffing themselves up. They said, we have knowledge, but it was not with love. And that was what Paul continued to focus on. He said, again, as the truth uh, that he does love them indeed, and it's because of his love for them that he does what he does. But because of their boasting, he says in verse 13, for they are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. That's quite a scathing rebuke. Those men who were coming along saying that they were legitimate apostles, but were not, there's punishment in store for them. But he says it's not a wonder to him that they would come as angels of righteousness or, or men declaring themselves to be uh, something special, ministers of righteousness, but they're not at all. 
even Satan himself makes himself to appear as an angel of light. Now, you have to be careful. Um, you know, he can uh, look like a very, very wonderful, uh, helpful being, but he's not. He's a schemer. And these were schemers as well. They were deceivers. And Paul is coming down on a, in a very hard way against them here because they were trying to take away from his ministry and change the things that he had taught them. Now he goes on to this issue of boasting. And he says in verse 16, I say again, let, one, let no one think me a fool. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool, that I also may boast a little. I'm going to be saying some things that I may sound foolish in saying them, but I'm doing this in a sense because of their boasting to show you that their boasting is absolutely wrong. And so bear with me a little, he says, while I boast of these things, because in this boasting I'll show you that their boasting is inadequate and, and certainly not to be uh, acceptable in their eyes. Verse 17 says, What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. Paul says, I didn't receive instruction from the Lord to tell you these things, but I'm going to do it even though it is kind of, a, in a sense, foolishness to me, but I'm going to continue in this confidence of boasting because I believe it would be beneficial to you. He goes on to say in verse 19, or rather 18, seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. Now that's a kind of a slam against the, the church of Corinth. They consider themselves to be wise in their dealings with other men. But Paul had told them there's a godly wisdom and there's a worldly wisdom. And their wisdom was of the world because it was a wisdom that was based upon a knowledge that made them puffed up. It was not because of love that they were considered to be wise at all. So Paul is here, again, telling them that, listen, your wisdom is causing you to be misled because it's not a godly wisdom. You put up with fools gladly. Again, he's speaking to those men who would come to uh, introduce themselves as great oratory professionals and uh, they would come and teach these Corinthian uh, Christians uh, who would listen to them but false doctrines and doctrines of Satan. But he goes on to say in verse 20, he says, For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you in the face. You take it from them. That's amazing. They, they, they're, they're willing to allow this one to mistreat them even though he is telling them mistruths because they really think he's a great orator and that's all it would matter to them in many cases. So he says again in verse 20, you put up with these. Then in verse 21 he says, to our shame I say that we were too weak for that. We didn't want to present ourselves in such a way as that. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. Now Paul gets down to the nitty-gritty of what he has to share. He's going to here begin to present his credentials, not his oratory skill, not his great uh, theological prowess, but 
his humility and his service to the king. And what he is going to be talking about here, as he says he's boasting about himself, is the fact that he was willing to suffer greatly on behalf of the ministry. Before we get into what Paul says here, I want to go back to an earlier chapter in Second Corinthians with you, chapter 4, and I'd like to read a portion of chapter 4 where Paul talks about his sufferings uh, for Christ. And I'm going to tie it together with what he shares in chapter 11 as we continue there. But in chapter 4 of Second Corinthians, beginning with verse 8, Paul says this, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of our Lord Jesus Christ, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. And then if you continue going down in that same chapter to verse 16, he says there, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Listen, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul is here in verse 16 talking about the fact that there is no reason for us to lose heart, even though we may be suffering. Our outward man may be perishing, but our inward man, our soul is preserved forever by the Lord, and our inward man is being renewed day by day. We're getting closer and closer to that perfection that will be ours when we come to that place where we'll stand and see our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in glory, and our glorious, glorified bodies will be like his glorified body. That's what we have to look forward to. So in the meantime, and again, our light affliction, he says in verse 17 of chapter 4, is what we must endure. Paul said that elsewhere in Philippians chapter 2, uh, rather chapter 3, that it was his desire to know the sufferings of Jesus Christ. He carried on his body the marks of Christ's suffering. And he was wearing that as a badge. And that is now what he's going to be talking about in chapter 11 as we continue now in verse 22 of chapter 11. Read on with me. He says, About those other individuals, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. They were using their Jewishness as their credentials. Paul saying, look, I have never ever used that kind of talk with regard to my position as a Jew. I have only one thing to say about my position. It is a position of humility under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And my Jewishness doesn't make me any better than anybody else. They're, they're saying, we're Jews. Well, so am I. They're saying we're Israelites. So am I, Paul says. We're saying, they're saying rather that they were sons of Abraham. Well, Paul was saying now, yes, yeah, so am I. 
That's not important. As far as Christ is concerned, we're all one in Christ. Neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, bond nor free, rich or poor. We're all on the same playing field. Paul is arguing that again here in a different sort of way. But he's saying, no, I'm not going to say that anything about my position as a Jew. That doesn't make me a more qualified individual at all. He says, this is what they say also. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. And now he goes on to say why he can say such things. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequently. In deaths often. He's saying my credentials are the things that I have had to endure as I've served the living Savior. That's what Paul is now going to be boasting in. Notice he says, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. He's saying they can't say those things about themselves. They'd rather pat themselves on the back and say, look what a good Jew I am. But they're, they're not telling you what really should be the motive behind any ministry. And that should be a willingness to serve the Lord regardless of what happens to our outer bodies. No matter what the world may do to us, they cannot stop us from proclaiming the good news in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is now saying here. There were times, as Paul indicated earlier, that he despaired of life, but he continued to serve the Lord in spite of all the suffering that he had to do. Now in this latter part of this chapter 11, we'll see some of the things that Paul says he had to endure. Now keep in mind that Paul is writing this during his third missionary journey. Chronologically, it would be about the time of perhaps where we find Paul in Acts chapter 19. Uh, now there are only a few other things that are told us in the book of Acts um, after chapter 19 um, about the things that Paul had to endure. But we're given very, very few things in the previous eight or nine chapters that are concentrating mostly on Paul's ministry. And during those earlier chapters, we find only a handful of times where Paul has had to deal with uh, something that he's going to like what he's going to be talking about here. In Philippi, for instance, he was put in prison and he was uh, 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 punished with rods. He uh, received uh, whips scourging by the Jews in Jerusalem uh, after his second missionary journey. Those were things that happened to Paul that are recorded in the Word of God. He was stoned in Lystra. Uh, he does mention that he was only stoned once. I don't know that anybody would want to be stoned more than once. If you're going to be stoned, it's usually only once that you're stoned because that, that always results in death, except in the case of Paul. Because in Lystra, after they stoned him and left for dead, he got back up and went back into the city and began to preach some more. But now Paul here in chapter 11 of verse 22 begins to unfold some of the other things that he's had to endure that we don't have records of for the most part. And listen to the list that he gives us. He says, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. They scourged him with a whip, 39 strikes. They did that because of what it says in the book of Deuteronomy where they are to be limiting their punishment of that kind of scourging to 40 stripes. And, and they always did it with respect to that requirement 
by limiting the number of strokes to just 39 in case they went over the 40 that was prescribed by the law. So they were very careful never to do more than 40, so they limited it to 39 just in case somebody might have counted wrong, apparently. But Paul says not only once, but five times he was scourged with 39 stripes. Three times, he says, verse 25, I was beaten with rods. We know of once in Philippi. Once I was stoned. That's the reference to the stoning in Lystra. Three times I was shipwrecked. Now, we only know of one shipwreck, but that shipwreck was from the very end of Paul's ministry on his way to Rome and happened after Paul wrote this letter. So, now we know that Paul had been involved in his shipwreck at least four times during his entire ministry and perhaps even more. We're not told, but sometime before the writing of this letter, he had already suffered shipwreck three times. That's not very fun, I'm sure, to have to be dealing with such trouble as he had to endure. Not only was he shipwrecked, but he was in the water a day and night before he was rescued. Now, he's in the Mediterranean Sea, most likely, or perhaps the Aegean Sea. Um, this shark-infested waters, uh, there were dangers in the sea. Perhaps he's floating on a piece of wood or some other thing that kept him afloat. He was able to stay alive, but had no guarantee of that, except for the fact that God had told him, you're going to Rome. And perhaps Paul remembered that every time he had to endure such things as he was dealing with in this particular study that we're looking at today, those various things that he had to deal with. He was encouraged by his faith in what God had told him. It was painful. It was a terrible thing to have to endure, but he was willing to endure it because he knew the promise of God to him. He goes on in verse 26 and says, He was in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Paul considered all of these to be light afflictions in comparison to what was to come, what is to come. Not certainly light afflictions in terms of the terrible effect that it had on his body. That's why he said again in chapter 4 that his outward body is perishing, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. He receives strength from the Lord. He would say elsewhere, when I am weak, then he is strong. I know that I have never have, had to endure any of these kinds of things that Paul had to endure that he related to here. I'm convinced that it's most likely that none of us have ever had to do anything of the sort. But there are some things that we do have to endure. 
there are perhaps going to be some degree of persecutions that we may have to face in these last days in which we live. Certainly others in other areas of the world are indeed having to suffer such things. But it is by God's grace that we are able to endure such things. We'll see that Paul talks about the fact that there is grace involved later on in chapter 12 when we get to that part of God's Word. Uh, we're not going to get there tonight. But what Paul is here saying is, I have proven myself through these things that I've had to endure to be a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as that, that is why Paul is boasting that he's willing to share with the Corinthian church all these details about what he has been willing to suffer to contrast with those who think that it's their oratory skill, that they're uh, so able to convince people with their flowery speaking, their, their wonderful words, that that is why they should be believed to be true apostles of God. Paul says, that's not the criteria that I'm using. It never should be our criteria either. Paul is saying this is what marks a true believer, one who is willing to die for his faith, one who is willing to suffer for his faith, one who is willing to endure all kinds of trouble and difficulties, trials and persecutions for his or her faith. That's what Paul is saying that he has done. And he stands as an, a, a perfect example for us to follow after. Let us be imitators of him. Paul ends his chapter by asking a few other questions. He says, Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to stumble? And I do not burn with indignation. He's saying, look, I'm not perfect. I'm not saying that I'm enjoying this kind of thing that God has allowed me to deal with in this ministry. I'm just as fearful as the next person. I have the same emotions as other people. I am no different than anybody else, Paul says, in that regard. Like Elijah, Elijah did some wonderful things. He spoke for the Lord. He was a man of God. He was a highly respected prophet of God. But James tells us he was just a man like you and I. He was just a man, and so was Paul, just a man like you and I. Paul is admitting that here. I'm no better than any of them in that regard. If I might boast, he said in verse 30, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. So there you have it. Paul's telling the truth. Paul is certainly giving this Corinthian church a reason to think differently about who it is they listen to. Finally, he says in verse 32, In Damascus, the governor under Artemis the king was guarding the city of Damascus with a garrison, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. That's when Paul began his ministry. Remember, I mentioned that to you a little earlier in tonight's uh, teaching that, that Paul left Damascus and went down to Saudi Arabia. And it was there that Jesus taught him 
so much that he was able to share with everybody that he would meet and encounter afterwards. But he was in Damascus, and he had just been recently converted. He had met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and when he got to Damascus, he began to minister there, greatly uh, speaking the word of truth. And there were other Jews who came after him and found out that he had been converted to Christianity and they wanted to kill him. So the saints let him escape out of Damascus by putting him in a large basket and lowering him down to the ground outside the wall in that basket and he was able to escape and leave the city of Damascus, escaping from those who were chasing after him. But every day since he began the ministry, he was always being followed by Judaizers, those who were trying to convince the people that he had just convinced of the saving grace of God's wonderful ministry through him, that he was teaching of all these blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus, the salvation that is freely given. And they were coming behind him and saying, no, 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 Paul is all wrong. It's not true. You have to become a Jew in order to be saved. You have to get circumcised. You have to tithe. You have to obey the law. They were saying those things because they were not willing to allow themselves to believe the truth. And since they would not believe the truth, they wanted to deceive others that they would not believe any of the truth either. The blind leaders of the blind, they both fall in the ditch. That's what Jesus said. So this is why Paul has given this argument about his own experiences, that the people in Corinth might realize that his ministry is real. And I can't say that I have suffered like Paul has suffered, but I can tell you that my desire to serve the Lord is no different is convincing I'm convinced that God has called me to this ministry and it is my conviction I'm compelled to share the truth of God's word as long as he enables me to do so that should be every one of our intents my friends each one of us should be willing and able to share what we know and it's not necessarily going to happen that you will have that opportunity to do so but when that opportunity comes pray about what it is that God would have you to say. And oftentimes, especially in these last days, I think it will be more and more likely that people will come to us and say, what's going on in the world around us? Why are these things happening? Friends, we can tell them. We can tell them what the Word of God tells about these things. And we can share the truth and prayerfully do so so that the truth will set them free. Let us be faithful in these last days to continue to be faithful to our God. Amen. Grace and peace.